Well, now come with me, please, to um, Acts chapter 7 as we continue our march through the book of Acts. And today is going to be our third and final visit to chapter 7. Now, as we've worked through these first six and a half chapters of Acts, there's been a very clear theme. No matter what happens, the subject is Jesus. If there's a miracle and one of the apostles seizes the opportunity to preach after the miracle, it was never about the miracle. It was never about how you could line up to receive your miracle. The subject is Jesus, whom God raised from the dead. Jesus and His death and resurrection, that's always the subject. When the Holy Spirit first came to a dwell of believers, Acts chapter 2, Peter explained immediately this was the fulfillment of prophecy about the Messiah. And then he said, Acts 2, 22 and 23, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. The subject is Jesus. And in every case, the gospel message, every time we've seen it preached in Acts, is undergirded with exposition of Old Testament texts, Peter started out right away talking about Joel. And then uh, David was cited in several places. And when, when Peter and John healed a man who had, who had never walked, he was asking for alms. He was asking for money. And they politely declined his request for money. And then chapter 3, verse 6, Peter said, I do not possess silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, Walk. Then in his sermon that day, Peter took them back to Genesis, to the, problems to, uh, to the promises to Abraham. And then when he and John were arrested, we read about it in chapter 4, verses 8 and 10, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene whom you crucified whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands before you here in good health. Then he quoted Psalm 118, and he said, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. The subject is Jesus. That's what the book of Acts is all about. Again, Peter quoted David, and again he had turned he turned the attention to Jesus, and then eventually the, the Sanhedrin arrested all the apostles, not just Peter and John. God set them free. They went back to the temple, preached again, and when they got rounded up the second time, the message was clear, chapter 5, verses 29 and 30. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on the cross. Then they were scolded, and then they were flogged, and then they went back and were told in Acts 5.42, they went back into the temple, and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. That's what Acts is all about. 
Christ died for your sins. He was buried. He rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Uh, He is your Savior. Repent. Come to Him. Turn to Him. Be saved. Be forgiven. Now the hard-hearted and spiritually blind members of the Sanhedrin at that time were absolutely furious with the apostles. They tried to shut them up. They tried to shout them down. They had arrested them. They'd beaten them. They'd flogged them. And they just couldn't stop the gospel. Well, then God raised up someone who wasn't one of the twelve apostles. This man named Stephen. He, he started out by accepting responsibility along with six other men to help the apostles with the daily care of the feeding of the widows in the early church. And soon... By God's power, Stephen was doing miracles just like the apostles, and he too proclaimed Christ. And so guess what? They arrested him. The Sanhedrin suborned false witnesses who accused him of blaspheming Moses, of blaspheming God, of speaking ill of the temple, of speaking ill of the law of Moses, and claiming that Stephen had said that, he would, that this Jesus would destroy the temple and all the things done there. So they came to wherever Stephen was, presumably, probably in the temple courtyard, And they dragged him away and brought him to that same place. Remember, the the members of the council would sit around the the edges and there was a place in the center for the one who was being grilled. And they started accusing Stephen. Now, I'm sure Stephen could tell this was actually a lynch mob. The accusations against him are at the end of chapter 6 and then I know other words were said, but we have this summary at the beginning of chapter 7, verse 1. The the high priest said, are these things so? And that launched verses 2 through 53, which I entitled, Best Last Words Ever. And it was all about Jesus. Verses 2 through 53 is Stephen's great monologue prior to the moment when these self-righteous hypocrites murdered him without any due process, without any proof of guilt. And as a matter of fact, he was quite innocent. We saw him start with Genesis in verses 2 through 16. He showed how this this gospel that he and the apostles were preaching was the, the final step in God's unfolding of his plan of redemption that started with the covenant God made with Abraham and it built from there and he went all the way back into Genesis, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, how Israel wound up being in Egypt. And then in verses 17 through 43, Stephen preached about Moses and he showed that not only was he not blaspheming Moses or the law, but his accusers were doing exactly what their forefathers had done in rejecting God's prophets. And, and last time we looked at what he said about Moses, this guy off the top of his head with his life hanging in the balance summarized Exodus through Deuteronomy. And now in our final visit to this chapter, we're going to see Well, it's the end for Stephen, but we'll see how the rest of his final day on this planet unfolded, and then we're going to circle back and see what God would have each of us do in light of this astounding chapter.
So we're going to look officially at verses 44 through 60 today. Number one, Stephen says, you were wrong about me and the temple. Number two, he says, you're guilty, not me. And number three, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Now, Stephen has shown his loyalty to God. He has shown that he wasn't blaspheming. He has shown that his, his message is in perfect harmony with Moses and that he also was not blaspheming or criticizing Moses. In fact, it was his accusers who were rejecting God's message through Moses and, and the law. We know that the law given through Moses was given to be our tutor to lead us to the Savior, Jesus Christ. Those countless thousands of of sacrifices repeated over and over again, all of them pictured the need for the once-for-all sacrifice, which is Christ. Next, Stephen addressed the, that absurd notion that he somehow spoke against the temple himself and the law that was implemented in the temple. And yet again, he shows amazing command of what well, we call it the Old Testament it was the only testament he had. It was God's Word. Uh, to show his respect for the temple, he recounts the history of it. And he starts with the original prototype of the temple, which was the tabernacle of the testimony in the wilderness. And it was always at the center of the life of the Israelites after they left Egypt all the way up until the time when Solomon built the first temple in Jerusalem. Israel carried that tabernacle with them when they crossed the Jordan River and they entered the promised land. And so we're going to pick it up at chapter 7, verse 44. Stephen says, now remember, the accusation is he's been criticizing the temple and saying that Jesus is going to destroy it. Stephen says, Our fathers had the tabernacle of testimony in the wilderness, just as he, spoke, as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern which he had seen. And having received it in their turn, our fathers brought it in with Joshua upon dispossessing the nations whom God drove out before our fathers until the time of Christ. Gee, this guy also knows the whole book of Joshua and even beyond Joshua. It's marvelous how he summarized the story of the tabernacle just as he'd summarized the covenant with Abraham and the life of Moses, and he has alluded to the, to the Davidic covenant. And now he goes on, he's assuming that his accusers, since they are the priesthood of, of Israel at that time, he's assuming that they're familiar with Samuel and Kings and Chronicles. We call them six books. The Jews called them three books, major historical sections of the Old Testament. And here's the next installment in his summary. Verse 47, David found favor in God's sight and asked that he might find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Again, Look how much can just tumble out of this guy's mind summarizing all that God has been doing for these centuries. And now he's going to make a, a very significant point about the theological significance of the difference between the essence of God himself and the earthly place dedicated 
to worshiping Him. So he says in verse 48, however, the Most High, that's um, a common Old Testament title for God, whose personal name is Yahweh. However, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands, as the prophet says. And now, Stephen pulls out from memory the words of Isaiah 66, 1 and 2. Heaven is my throne, and, the earth, and earth is the footstool of my feet. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what place is there for my repose? Was it not my hand which made all of these things? Now he's making an important point there because the, the Jewish leaders accuse Stephen of blaspheming the temple, but wow, what a case of the pot calling the kettle black. The words from Isaiah 66 are showing that God is infinitely greater than the temple. And when they thought of God as somehow um, being confined in, dwelling inside the temple, they were the ones misunderstanding the temple. They were misunderstanding who God is. Now, as I've pointed out, all through this rather spectacular chapter, Stephen never engages with the specifics of the false accusations against him. He doesn't dignify them as if there was any substance to them. He talks about God and His Word and His plan and His truth and His Son. Now, he's ready to point the truth squarely between the eyes of his murderous accusers. He says... You are guilty, not me. We've seen him draw several parallels between the way the leaders of Israel treated Jesus and how their ancestors had treated the prophets all the way back to to Moses. And now here comes the frontal blow, verse 51. You men. Now I can't tell you for sure that he was pointing at them. But I can picture him in that room surrounded by these men and maybe turning around and even pointing to the ones that he knew. And you can bet he knew them. He brought sacrifices to the temple. These were the priests. He says, you men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You're doing just as your fathers did. They were guilty of rejecting God's word. They were guilty, their ancestors were, of attacking his messengers. They had attacked God the Son. Stiff-necked is a metaphor for obstinacy. Uncircumcised in heart and ears is a metaphor to describe the the hard-heartedness and the spiritual resistance to God's messengers all through the ages of their history. The phrase always resisting the Holy Spirit describes refusing to humble yourself before the Word of God. Uh, That's how you can grieve the Holy Spirit. You just simply refuse to, to, to live according to what He says. And what He says is recorded in the Word. Then He gets more specific in 52 and 53. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed 
those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one. So he's talking about the prophets that predicted Jesus. Then he says, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the law as ordained by angels, yet did not keep it. When you study the prophets of the Old Testament, you pretty quickly come to understand their lives were never comfortable. Most of them were openly persecuted by the people who should have welcomed them. There's the ones like Jeremiah, Ezekiel. God says, I have a great message to give you to give to my people. Oh, by the way, no one will ever heed what you say. In fact, all those prophets were, all those prophets were pointing to the righteous one, the Messiah, Jesus. Now, Stephen slips in here this part about you received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. It's an interesting thing. The Bible does mention that somehow the giving of the law involved angels. And the Jews had a kind of a special place for, for angels. They sort of corrupted the doctrine of angelology. You can read in the first part of Hebrews uh, how Jesus, uh, the, the author of Hebrews makes a big point that Jesus is superior to angels. But in case you don't know it, just understand the, the law did come through um, angels. Deuteronomy 33, 2. He, that's Moses said, Yahweh came from Sinai and dawned on them from Seir. He shone forth from Mount Paran and he came from the midst of 10,000 holy ones. That's God using angels. And at his right hand there was flashing light uh, for uh, there was flashing lightning for them. Galatians 3:19 the apostle Paul says, "Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions having been ordained through angels." And then Hebrews chapter 2, right after the superiority of Jesus to angels, Hebrews 2, 2 and 3 says, For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? So Stephen slipped that in about the angels because they had a thing about that. And he's saying, it was all about Jesus, guys. The law was to point you to the Savior. The problem was not Stephen. It wasn't anything Stephen did. The problem was not the apostles. The problem was not the gospel. The problem was in the hearts of the self-righteous, hypocritical, false teachers who at that time controlled the priesthood and the Sanhedrin and the activities of the temple. So Stephen's point was simple. You are guilty, not me. Look again, verse 53. You who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. It was no accident that Stephen included the words about the Jewish leader's treatment of Jesus. He said, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. And they were about to murder him, another spokesman of God. So number three, here comes the end for Stephen, earthly speaking. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit, is our third point, verse 54. Now, when they had heard this, they were cut to the quick, and they began gnashing their teeth at him. We saw that phrase, cut to the quick, 
you remember it, back in chapter 5, verse 33, that same murderous group wanted to kill the apostles because they were declaring that they were witnesses of the resurrected Christ and they wouldn't stop calling people to repentance. They were cut to the quick and they were furious. Remember, it was only the council of Gamaliel talked them out of killing the apostles that day. Well, by contrast, back in chapter 2, verse 37, after Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, it says that the people who listened to him were pierced to the heart. And they said, brethren, what shall we do? And 3,000 of them heeded, repent, be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. And they believed and they were saved that day. So there's this this bifurcated response to the preaching about Jesus. Cut to the quick and pierced to the heart. Pierced to the heart describes the inner spiritual response of the conviction of sin. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Cut to the quick means really angry. Hurt, wounded, offended. And it leads to bursting out in anger and the justification of yourself. His enemies were so carried away, it says they were gnashing their teeth at him in anger and frustration. Somehow I picture them growling at him. They were absolutely mad, furious, insane with hatred. Oh, what a contrast with Stephen, though. He was perfectly calm. Remember when they were throwing all their accusations at him in chapter 6? It says, there he stood with a face like an angel, calm as could be. God gave him total calm and total peace. Verse 55, and being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven And saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And those words prompted his immediate promotion into the presence of Jesus. Look at the last four verses of the chapter. But they cried out with a loud voice, and covered their ears and rushed at him with one impulse. When they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him, and the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. This is the part of the process of stoning. The witnesses cast the first stone. They lay aside their robes so they can heave bigger and batter rocks. They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. And that's the biblical euphemism for physical death. This was a horrendous display of murderous, pseudo-spirituality. These men were too self-righteous to kill Stephen right where they were. They didn't want to make a mess in their nice council chambers. 
They didn't even just drag him outside the meeting place and do the deed there. Their hypocrisy just shouts out from this passage because they rigorously chose to obey the instructions in the law that said a blasphemer was to be stoned and the stoning had to take place outside the city. So they're rigorous about stoning outside the city, never mind that the guy they were accusing of blasphemy wasn't a blasphemer. Never mind the man they called guilty was innocent. No problem murdering. Oh, but we have to be scrupulous about where. They chose to obey the instructions of the law about outside the city, but it never dawned on them. They had turned into a frenzied lynch mob. They were supposed to be the ones who sat in the seat of Moses, the ones who taught people the real meaning of the law, but they rejected the one that the law pointed them to. Oh, and uh, don't forget, if you don't think of it right now, you probably will later, you've learned under, as you've been through the Gospels, about uh, how the, the Jews did not have authority under the Romans to execute anyone. They did not have the right to do uh, capital punishment. But in this case, they were too carried away in their blind rage and frustration to care at all about that. They didn't, they didn't try to go find Pontius Pilate or any other Roman to do this for them. Now, how do we reconcile that? Well, we have no commentary about it anywhere in Scripture, so the ultimate answer is we don't know, but we can only assume the Romans didn't intervene in this case because it was an internal matter among the Jews. And they gave the Jews quite a bit of latitude as long as they posed no threat to the stability of the rule of Rome. Now remember in the case of Jesus, they wanted to murder Jesus, but they were afraid that the followers of Jesus would riot and it would cost them their positions because the Romans would get upset. So they went through that, that mockery of justice and tried, to eventual, tried and eventually did convince the Romans that Jesus posed a threat to them so he had to be crucified. Here, we're just really mad and we're going to kill this guy. And they got away with it. And surely you notice that first mention of a young man named Saul. It won't be too long in our study through Acts. You're going to see him converted, transformed, uh, transformed into the Apostle Paul. We saw an earlier mention of uh, Paul, Saul's rabbi mentor, Gamaliel. He's the one that gave the, the wishy-washy advice back in chapter 5 that let the apostles be set free again. And we mused back then, was it possible if Gamaliel was there? Perhaps his star pupil Paul was there in chapter 5? And I think he probably was, but I know for sure he was here. And he was a willing participant. He was complicit in the murder of Stephen. Maybe he didn't throw stones because he wasn't one of the ones who had lied about what he had done. But he was there. So put a bookmark there. We'll come back and praise the Lord. We're going to see Saul become Paul. But before we leave this chapter, I want you to let it get personal with you. 
This is a historical record. It's a long time ago. We're not in Israel. We don't have any apostles. We're fresh out of temples at the moment. We, how do we connect to this? Well, it is the historical record of, of what happened, and it is God's Word. Therefore, we know it is profitable to teach us, to reprove us, to correct us, to train us. So, before we leave this chapter, what lessons are here for us in Idaho 2,000 years later? Gentiles, not Jews. How might this help us in our walk with Christ? Or if the day comes that someone wants to kill us for our faith. Well, I'd like you to think back through this chapter so that you can learn from Stephen's words and his examples and his attitude. And let me just suggest to you lessons that we would well learn from the example of Stephen. Stephen. Number one, the lesson in demeanor. Remember I pointed out how he began by saying, Hear me, brethren and fathers. Even with his life on the line, he spoke calmly, he spoke respectfully, he treated people as um, individuals created in the image of God. He, re- he respected their position even though they were abusing their position. He could have said, I protest, I demand a retrial, Uh, go call the apostles and all my friends, have them bring their placards, we need to protest, you're violating my rights. No. He turned the subject to what the subject really was. You're mad because Jesus died and rose again. And you don't like that. There's a lesson in his demeanor. Secondly, learn the lesson of long-term preparation. Stephen had a spectacular grasp of the Bible. Now trust me, he didn't get that from perusing a few scrolls the night before this happened. You you don't become strong in an instant. Uh, You you see... uh, uh, spectacular work of architecture. You see this, you see this bridge and you see uh, many semis going both ways on the bridge and the bridge is strong enough to support them. Well, the bridge didn't become strong because the semis rolled over them. The bridge became strong because it was built strong. And if you aren't to the point yet that you can summarize the flow of the plan of God for redemption in the Bible? Well, don't beat yourself up. Instead, start taking little steps day by day to build your understanding, to build your comprehension. You know, Jesus promised that He would, that he would bring to the minds of His apostles what they needed to say. Well, you know what? God never reminds you of anything that you don't have in your mind. You can't remember anything you don't know. Don't, don't just say, God's going to supernaturally give me revelation at the moment. No, He already gave you the revelation, every single thing you need. So start working your way. Inch your way along. There's a great way to do it. Been uh, suggested by others besides me, but I will do this even though I get no commission for recommending the publication. A great thing to do is pick any book of the Bible 
start in Genesis if you want to. Maybe you want to, uh, maybe you would rather pick um, Haggai because you don't know what's in there. Uh, but pick any book of the Bible you want. Take your MacArthur Study Bible. Yes, I'm recommending a specific one because uh, there, for all the good ones that there are, there's none better than that. Read slowly and carefully, meticulously through that book and read every footnote that goes along with it. Now, the footnotes are not inspired, but they are the fruit of countless thousands of hours of study. You do that. Do that for one book. You say, I didn't get it all. Okay, do it again. That's why it may be good to start with a short book. And then just keep doing that and before long, you will gradually have a better grasp of God's Word than most pastors in the world. I promise you. Another lesson. Learn the lesson of filling your mind. While you're working on gradually building your understanding of the Bible, also work on memorizing key passages. You say, oh, you, you haven't been inside my head it's fossilizing. I can't memorize like I used to. I can't memorize like I used to. I, I went for, for two years memorizing 70 new Greek words every single week, and I never missed one on the weekly quiz. I don't do that anymore. It's harder. So take your time. You know, you can memorize one, then you can move on to another one, and pick your battles. Pick the key spots. I mean, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. You can memorize that. You can memorize, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not as a result of works, lest anyone should boast. You know, if, if right now you can recite Five verses from memory? Well, I'll bet you in five weeks from now, you could probably recite six. Maybe even ten. Just start filling your mind. Notice how Stephen had that balance of the big picture overview and certain key passages. Here's another one. Learn the lesson of Christ-centeredness. Um, when he was falsely accused, Stephen didn't ever get dragged off into the weeds of debating the accusations. Instead, he turned the conversation to what it was really all about, Jesus and what he did for us. Just keep speaking truth in love. When I walked through a season of being falsely accused of things and I was buried under a mountain of lies... I was encouraged by good friends who said, don't go, bad, don't go arguing about that stuff. Let your excellence be your defense. That's what Stephen did. He kept pointing to God and to His Word. Or as First Thessalonians says, as you walk and please God, excel still more. Work on the good things. Here's another lesson from Stephen's example. The lesson of using biblical examples. He was not shy about using examples from the Bible about people who sinned 
And sometimes people become convicted by seeing the parallels between themselves and others and finding out that, well, I'm not the only one that has this anger problem. I'm not the only one that has this lust problem. I'm not the only one that has this fill-in-the-blank problem. Sin and rejecting messengers of God like you when you're attacking, when, when you're attacked for your faith, it's not unique. Don't be shy about using examples. Another's, another lesson is the lesson of standing alone when necessary. Be willing to stand alone when your message is rejected and when you are hated for Christ. Now, don't get me wrong. Christianity is not a singles match. It's a team effort. We together are the body of Christ. We need each other. We build on each other. We build strength from each other. We encourage each other. All of those one another's of the New Testament strengthen us. But there may come the day when you are all alone. It had to be lonely for Stephen that final day of his life. They drag him alone before the Sanhedrin. Where were the apostles? I bet they were around, but I bet they were locked out. I bet they were praying, but God let Stephen die anyway. It was lonely for him, surely on that final day of his life, but he stood fast. Another lesson, the lesson of clinging to Jesus. He lifted his eyes toward heaven. We put it in the song, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face. Now you're probably not going to be granted a vision of Jesus in heaven as Stephen was, but you can always ponder the beauty of your Savior and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Never take your eyes off of him. And learn the lesson about betrayal. Remember he called these guys brethren? He spoke of their fathers. He said, men of Israel. Realize he probably knew them. Surely he brought offerings to that temple. And these were priests. I said when he went around, you men... I bet he looked them in the eye. They betrayed him. They betrayed him horribly. And many whom you have considered or do consider friends, maybe even family, will turn against you. Jesus said it would happen. They may have received Stephen's offerings in the temple and they could just slip right by that and throw the stones at him. Don't be surprised when you are betrayed because of your faith in Jesus Christ. Oh, and by the way, it really hurts. It really hurts. Uh, but that needs to the, leads to the next lesson, the lesson of trust and hope. Stand firm to the end in God's promises. Stephen knew that the worst they could do to him that day was kill him. And the best they could do to him that day was kill him because he was going to be with the Lord. Think of the end of 1 Corinthians. We just, our radio program just ended 1 Corinthians 15 this past week with steadfast, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. And then one more lesson from Stephen, the lesson of practicing forgiveness. 
Father, don't hold this sin against them. Well, who should they hold the sin against if not the ones that killed him? But see, the point is, he understood forgiving as he had been forgiven. And even if your enemy never repents, you need to not let him occupy space in your head and in your heart, which is exactly what's going on when you dwell on those things and you become bitter. Be ready to forgive, even if you never get the opportunity. Stephen was around the very early church. He knew the, the first, he was part of the first, I don't know, 10,000 of believers. The apostles were there, and you know, there were the close associates of the, of the apostles, men like Stephen, men like uh, James, not James the brother of John, not James the apostle called James the less, but James the half-brother of Jesus. He actually became the, the de facto leader of the church at Jerusalem in the early years of the, of the church. We're going to see him play a very key role later on, but Stephen knew those guys. And Stephen probably also knew another of Jesus' half-brothers, the guy named Jude. And I was just thinking the other day, maybe Jude thought about a guy like Stephen when Jude wrote these words, one of the most glorious benedictions in all of the Bible, Jude 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. That was literally an instantaneous transformation for Stephen. Able to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to our only or to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Brothers and sisters, I don't think any of us are going to face a stoning squad today before dark. Probably in our culture, even if we are murdered for the cause of Jesus, we probably won't be stoned. Oh, but people are getting mocked right out of their jobs, out of their schools, out of their friendships, alienated from families. It's getting worse. And I have no promise that it'll get better. I, I have every expectation that it won't get better societally. But we can be ready to stand as did Stephen. And whether it is today or whether it's 50 years from now, we can cry out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we can stand in your Son, forgiven, restored, redeemed, adopted, complete, blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And Father, as much as we don't 
ask for persecution as much as we don't yearn to be mistreated and falsely accused, thank you that you are able to make us stand blameless in your sight. Have your way with us. Use us for your glory to speak your truth in love to a world that evermore hates you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.